We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up, food journalist and author Mark Bittman on his new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. Bittman was a food columnist at the New York Times for 30 years and is now a special advisor on food policy at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. He joins us to speak about his new book and what it will take to transform our food systems for a healthier, more just world. Then at 940, Fame Barrier author Isabella Allende's forthcoming book, The Soul of a Woman, is a personal account of her experience as a feminist. She'll join us to preview the book and we'll get her thoughts on finding happiness in a time of pandemic. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Food journalist and author Mark Bittman explores the history of humankind's relationship to food in his latest book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. He argues that the development of agriculture has shaped today's public health, climate change, and social justice crises, and he joins us to talk about his new book and about how to transform our agricultural systems to reclaim a healthy, just future. And welcome back to Forum, Mark Bittman. Good to have you. It is so nice to be back here, Michael. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us. And I want to say, first of all, that uh, this is an important book, a book that uh, comes after you did about 30 cookbooks. I could almost see it coming the last time we were in conversation, uh, but not nearly as ambitious as I had imagined when you're talking about a almost two million year history of food and the food system. Let's get right to really what you're arguing here, though, and sort of the thesis and central idea in your book. Uh, we need big changes and we need reform politically, culturally, and agriculture and food production, and we need them ASAP, or else we're really going to be in that suicidal thing that you talk about in your subtitle. You know, it's funny because food is something we all think about all the time. It's often said that everybody's constantly thinking about their next meal and whether that's true or not. I mean, it, it is true that we do think about food, but there's also a way in which we don't take it seriously enough. And, and, um, Some people take it for granted and some don't, but we don't question where it comes from. We don't often question how it's produced. And and those are huge questions that that really affect the environment and public health and and so many other things. And you make the case, I think, that uh, land and labor laws really are the heart of what we need to do to reform well, the kind of toxic diet that we're heir to, um, but it does link to so many things, to to human rights, to climate change, to justice, and kind of point the finger very accusingly at what you call big food. Let's talk about that. Well, um, we can talk about it. You know, we could spend 40 minutes talking about anything you just mentioned, but but big food is really the consolidation of, of food processors and of, of huge farmers who 
are largely responsible for overproducing what are called grains, but but are a variety of foods like corn and soybeans, um, neither of which is technically a grain, but um, but both of which are produced in tremendous quantities, way more than anyone could possibly need, and and are converted into primarily three things, junk food, animal feed, and in this country, at least, ethanol, which is, you know, a complete, it's a non-food issue, but it's a, it's an interesting crop issue, and it's, it's kind of a bad story. So when you talk about food coming from plants and animals and junk, it's the junk where we really need to pay particular attention, the industrialization of food to all this junk? That's, I think that's the primary thing. You know, someone said to me the other day, and I get a lot of questions. People, people like to personalize issues. I've discovered you probably have known this forever. But you start talking about this and people start talking about their diets. Someone said to me the other day, so I eat as little junk food as I can and as little sugar as I can and as few animal products as I can. And I said, that's it. There's, no, there's nothing more to talk about. You've nailed it. So the junk food comes first, though, because it, it's really um, it's really got the biggest impact on agriculture, which means land use, which means which ties to all these environmental and social justice issues. And then on the other end, it's the stuff that's worst for us. So it, turn, it, it ties to all the public health issues. I'm talking to Mark Bittman, uh, author, former New York Times columnist and special advisor on food policy at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. His new book, again, is called Animal, Vegetable, Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. You have a vision here of a just food system. And the key, I think, uh, is government being a steward of land, uh, of processing food that's nourishing, of prioritizing human health, all of those kinds of things which really strike us as things that really should be sacred, um, support, also supporting local food security and sovereignty. But I'm just wondering, how much of a, a role can government really play? There's a, a whole case that you make for the Department of Agriculture and the USDA to be uh, much more responsive to consumer needs and to the needs of what we have to have for a just food system. Um, but let's talk about this specifically in terms of what government can do, what they should do. I don't know what government can do five, 10, 20 years from now. Um, we do know what government can be doing this year and next year. And I think it's important to, to not get caught up in the pessimism or of saying it's never going to get fixed, but just try to make the changes that can be made now to pick the five or eight or three, whatever the number is, highest impact achievable changes. Um, you know, and three or four days ago, I would have said, that included $15 an hour minimum wage nationally, and, and that's been shot down, which I think is a shame. But, but it's that kind of change that can, that can have an impact that we can then evaluate and say, okay, what are the next steps? It's not as if we're going to go from uh, a food system that is almost 100% for profit to a food system that says food is the, the goal of a food system is to be provide nourishing food for as many people as possible while having a minimum impact on the environment. You can't just go straight from one to the other. So we, I think we just have to look at incremental steps and that includes better school lunches, more supportive 
food stamps limiting the sale or, or making the, the sale of junk food more difficult, s- relatively achievable, but high impact, things like that. And, and looking at where, where that takes us and then what are the next steps after that. Has there been, uh, though, in your judgment, uh, a kind of um, sea change in some ways? I mean, there is the argument that food companies are now more responsive to consumer demands, making more natural food or reducing or not adding sugar, lower sodium, high fiber, those kinds of things, whole wheat. I mean, I think that the changes have been have been cultural. Uh, there's a there's a little bit of that and, and certainly some percentage of Americans are eating better than they used to, but the reality is that 60%, an estimated 60% of calories in the United States are in the form of ultra-processed food, which is what I'm calling junk. And that means that's what's out there. Someone's going to eat that 60% of calories. So to the extent that you or I or anyone else eats less than than their share of that 60%, it's going to mean someone else eats more of it. That's that's what's being produced, and that's the upshot of the, the overproduction of grains that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Wondering also, Mark, what your thoughts are about, uh, there's a new story that's been getting a lot of attention now, about heavy metals and baby food from a congressional report uh, in many of the baby food labels. They've got mercury and arsenic and lead. Uh, this is, uh, even in the organic brands, this is in the soil, though. Right. Well, organic isn't magic, um, and and environmental damage affects everybody. So um, that's a particular story, and and we could talk about the usefulness of buying real ingredients and cooking at home. But if crops themselves are tainted, well, that that means the FDA isn't doing its job and enforcing clean water, clean air, clean land regulations and. And we need to push it to do that. You know, the, the last time many of us were optimistic was was two thousand, at least concerning food, was two thousand eight when Obama was elected, and we thought there was a, a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of regulations that would in, make the food system better. And um, for a variety of reasons, those opportunities were largely missed. And and now there's an opportunity to get some of that get some of those regulations back. And I think we just, we need to push. We need to push our legislators. We need to talk about this. We need to take it seriously. And what about, again, I alluded to this before, but because you've mentioned this a few times, leadership in USDA and Secretary of Agriculture, the roles they can play? Well, um, it would be nice to have a visionary in the Department of Agriculture. Vilsack certainly was not that uh, during the Obama administration, but he has met with um, a variety of, of good people and good groups in the last few weeks. And there are indications that he's going to take the job a little more seriously and be a little more on the side of everyday eaters and maybe a little less on the side of big food. But we have to see, and, and as, I, you know, as I've said already and keep saying, it's up to us to, us to push these people. It's up to us to make it be known that we want better food. We want um, clean air, clean water. We want lower impact agriculture and so on. Talking again with Mark Bittman, his new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from 
sustainable to suicidal. And if you would like to join this conversation or if you have questions or comments, we'd like to hear from you. You can give us a call now and let me give you the number to do that. It's toll free 866-733-6786. Again, the number for your calls is 866-733-6786. Feel free to join the program. You can also join the program by getting in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or emailing. Any questions or comments you may have for Mark Bittman to forum at kqed.org. I'm struck again by the ambition in your book because you talk about this kind of food frenzy and drive for food and tie it to slavery and colonialism and famine and genocide. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that uh, I, I think uh, I'm quoting you now, um, talking about uh, agriculture over centuries has gotten away with murder and it's gotten worse as the years have gone by. Well, you know, you wouldn't say that that agriculture was the only factor in the in the tragedies uh, or phenomenon that you phenomena that you just mentioned, but it's been a key factor and I think an overlooked factor. And you can you can make the argument, and I do, that Europeans were forced to look for new land and that led them to to North America, North and South America. And and the results of that are are well known. But what's considered a little bit less um, are a couple things worth mentioning. One is that that Slavery was um, was largely responsible for building agriculture and building wealth in the United States. And another is that the Homestead Act of 1862 was an act which basically legitimized stealing land from indigenous people of North America and giving it to white Europeans, mostly males. So these kinds of things, it, you know, as I said, it's not the only reason we're in the situation we're in today but it's a key reason. And we're going to continue with Mark Bittman and hear from you, our listeners. Join us toll-free, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny, interested in hearing from listeners your thoughts about what we need to do to, uh, I use Mark Pittman's language here, um, lessen the grip of what he calls big food. Uh, and there are certainly activists and workers and even governments who are in the fight and uh, who are leading. In fact, here's a comment from a listener who says, I think this younger generation will help lead the way. My teenager decided to become a vegan last year, as many have. Uh, of her friends, and uh, this generation seems to be taking the issue of climate change and voting with their plates. Think that's true, Mark? Well, I I like to think it's true, and um, certainly uh, that would be a good thing. So, yeah. I mean, it's anecdotal at this point. Um, But you look at the recent election, and you you do think that, that millennials and the generation after them, I'm not sure what their nickname is at this point, but um, are, are taking things seriously, yes. Get your response to a tweet, too, if I could, from Casey, who says, are we supporting junk food production through farm subsidies to corporate corn farms? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no question. And and it starts with 
started with the giving, as I, as I said before the break, it started with the giving away of that land. Um, and it continues with direct and indirect subsidies uh, to farmers of corn and, and soybeans. It's not just direct payments. It's also we subsidize cleaning up the land. We subsidize the public health costs of people getting sick from, you know, let, let me say this. 300,000 people died of COVID or COVID-related complications in, in 2020. Over a million people died of diet-related chronic disease. And yet we consider COVID a crisis, which it absolutely is, um, but we don't consider what our diet is a crisis, and that's a crisis too. Um, so, so part of my goal here is to just say that, you know, repeatedly, to say this is something worth paying attention to. I don't have all the answers, I don't claim to, but I, I have spent a lot of time looking at this years and years, and it's clear that this is one of our fundamental and underlying problems and one that we're paying much less attention to than we are to others. Let me bring a caller on. Judy joins us first here. Judy, welcome. You're on the air on forum. Good morning, gentlemen. So um, a couple of months ago, um, 60 Minutes had a program on about the farming business, big farming business of um, pigs. And they said that the USDA was not allowed to go into this one factory farm. It was owned by a Japanese country, I mean, a, a business. And so they were not allowed to go in and assess the animals for disease. And so my question is, how is it that our farming, um, especially our, our factory farms, could be owned by an outside country and also that the USDA is not allowed to monitor the food there and this was on 60 Minutes, and I do believe I have all this information correct. If you gentlemen know anything further on that, please let me know. Uh, thank you for the question, Judy. Mark, can you shed some light here? Well, I mean, it's legal for other countries to do yeah. business in the United States. And, and um, we can talk a little bit about international land grabbing. Uh, an area the size of Ohio is owned by by other countries in the United States. I don't know this particular story, but what I do know is that FDA does not know how many factory farms there are in the United States and doesn't look also, I mean, it, it, it's logically true, but also doesn't know the location of all the factory farms in the United States. So there are as many as 50% more than, than FDA knows about. The regulations aren't being enforced they're poisoning the land and air and water around them. Um, whether they're Japanese-owned or American-owned is, is not as important as the fact that they're, they're polluting and producing second-rate meat. It's just an overall lack of oversight, isn't there? Well, that's, you know, that's a, a big part of it. And, 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 and let me say again, the question is, we've never said, USDA has never said, what is a food system for? What are we producing food for? Because the logical answer to that question is to provide nourishment for as many people as we can, as affordably as we can. And that's not what's happening. And, and if you ask anyone why we produce food, that's the logical answer. But that's not the history of food production in the United States. And we'll go to another caller. We'll have Paul join us next. Paul, welcome. Thank you for waiting. You're on the Hello. Air. Hi. Hello, I uh, I have a question about 
the agricultural industry. I've read several articles recently about monopolies and how monopolies in agriculture squeeze farmers on both ends, on the expenses end and on the profit end. So I'm asking, do you think there's any chance that Tom Vilsack will be able to do anything about this problem? Mark well, Pittman. any chance that he will be able to do anything is broad enough <laughs> for me to say yes there's a chance there is a chance that he will do something is he going to turn this ship around absolutely not but can legislation be introduced that will move things in the right direction that that can happen yes let me thank paul for the call listener wants to know why do you take the position that uh, processed food is necessarily junk food rather than a subset of processed food not sure I understand that question. Um, I mean, a lot of bread is processed, um, but there's bread that's made traditionally from whole grains with with three or four ingredients, and and that's I wouldn't call that junk food. I would call that processed food. What I'm calling junk food is is would be called ultra processed or hyper processed, and that would start with stripping all the nutrients out of wheat and then making bread with 10 or 20 ingredients, most of which are not available to any consumer, no one would ever cook with. They, they're functions or, or, or products of a laboratory, not of nature. A question from Victor, should we tax junk junk foods like chips to deal with this crisis? I mean, the, the argument, those of you in the Bay Area are familiar with soda taxes and, and the argument that if you tax junk food, uh, consumption decreases is sound. It's the truth. And if consumption of junk food decreases, then, then chronic disease, diet-related chronic disease decreases. So I would say yes. Many other countries around the world have started to do this. I think that the right thing to do would be to tax the most egregious junk food, soda is definitely at the top of the list, and use the proceeds from that to subsidize the consumption of fruits and vegetables. That's my opinion. But again, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's going to be one step at a time. So the first step is, yes, let's tax soda. And again, we're talking with Mark Bittman. His new book is called uh, Animal Vegetable Junk. Uh, here's Paul who writes, we should require the government to mandate that the daily requirement of sugar be included on all nutrition labels. Since the need is minimal, many folks would think twice if the cookie they ate contained 200% of their daily need for sugar. It's true, and that, that has happened. There are, there are added sugars on labels now, but I... I you know, there's a there's a way in which labels are helpful and, and productive, useful. There's also a way in which they can be misleading. And if you look at a label, if you look at the nutritional analysis of an Oreo and a banana, you can come to the conclusion that they're not that dissimilar. And yet, because they have similar sugar content, uh, bananas are not especially high in protein. They're both essentially mostly carbohydrate, yet one is a product of nature that um, is nourishing and, and benign at worst, and the other is, uh, is junk food. It's processed by the body as straight sugar. Plus, I don't think you're going to get too much potassium in an Oreo, which you would get in a well, banana. Right? I mean, but you could. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. 
you could say the, the Nabisco, whoever owns Nabisco now, I'm not, I'm not sure, but um, whoever owns Nabisco could decide, well, Oreos are low in potassium. Let's put some potassium in there. It doesn't, it doesn't make it food. Listener Penny wants to know what your opinion is of products like Impossible Burger. Doesn't it count as ultra processed and is it part of the problem or part of the solution? Well, kind of both. Um, yes, it counts as ultra processed, but to the extent that it relieves animal suffering, it's hard to argue against it. I would rather see people eat whole plant food, uh, real food than, than fake meat, but, but um, it's hard to say that it's all bad. So I'd say, I'd say yes to both. It's junk food and it's part of the solution. I haven't talked to you in a while. You I mean, still not everything is black and white here, right? Yeah, so, right. There are a lot of grays, but I'm, I just want are you still keeping with that uh, sort of nocturnal diet of yours, vegan part-time diet? I, I mostly plant during the day and at night the rules go out the window. So I don't, you know, I don't think that veganism is the goal. I think that eating and, and bear in mind that there's plenty of vegan junk food, just like there's plenty of organic junk food. So I, I think that, Eating a diet that's high in, that's plant forward, let's say, it's high in, in vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and so on, um, is desirable. But I don't think that, that veganism is particularly a noble goal. I think that eating a sane, sound diet is the, is the right goal. We'll bring another caller on. Catherine joins us next. Catherine, welcome. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. Um, a few years ago, we listened to one of a senator or house house member who sat on the who in discussing the farm bill and there were crazy subsidies for cafos there were crazy subsidies for soy and um, corn and at the time a caller called in and asked why isn't the government subsidizing fresh uh, produce and the the legislator just didn't care he just said that's not what we do and so it's you know, what it does for us consumers is it puts the onus on us to do all the research to figure out which farmers are truly organic, since the organic standards have dropped significantly, and which farmers are, are raising their cattle sustainably, and as a result of su supporting CAFOs and, and, you know, polluting our water, there's this massive push to going all vegetarian, even though that that's, in my opinion, not healthy for young children, growing children and, and what they need. So the amount of effort that the consumer has to go through just to try to find organic or sustainably grown or sustainably raised is not, it's, 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 it's exorbitant, but it's also costly. And it and shouldn't it, be sitting it, on our shoulders. It's also quite onerous, as you're suggesting, Catherine, I think. Let me get a response from Mark Bittman. Mark? It is onerous. Catherine's right. And it, and it also um, isn't possible for everyone, which, of course, is it kind of goes without saying, but it, it's worth saying that um, you, you have to have time and you have to have money in order to pursue a really good diet. You know, if, if government's job at the end of the day is to protect people from business um, and to help people have better lives, then it's failing when it comes to food. And, and Catherine's right, the onus is on eaters and not every eater can, can manage it. 
You urge, though, in your book uh, for consumers to really resist engineered edible substances, but sometimes uh, it's difficult, again, as Catherine suggests, because you don't know what's engineered and what's not engineered half the time. Well, and also, as I said before, if 60% of the calories in our diet are junk food, then then someone's got to eat that. It's just out there. Yeah. Um, everybody knows if you're driving somewhere, if you're in an airport. I mean, none of us have been in airports recently, but the point stands. When you're when food is not under your control, if you're not buying and, and cooking your own ingredients, it's really, really challenging to eat well. You're a supporter of the Green New Deal. Well, not that anyone's calling it the Green New Deal anymore, but I think climate change and agriculture are very closely aligned. Um, agriculture is, is the second largest producer of greenhouse gases after the fossil fuel industry. And of course, there's a lot of fossil fuel used in agriculture, not only in driving machinery, but in producing chemical fertilizer. So um, you can't address climate change without addressing agriculture. And you can't really address agriculture without addressing climate change. So, yes. Apropos, a uh, comment from a listener named Ron who says, if we tax soil loss and paid for soil accumulation, it would favor sounder non-chemical agriculture and also help with climate change. And a question from a listener, these issues feel so beyond one person. How do we fight against big food with all its lobbyist dollars? Is it enough to just make the personal choice to eat in a way that honors the environment? They are beyond one person. Uh, you know, Catherine alluded to this also. It, we can make individual choices. We can have uh, infinitesimally small impact as individuals, but but the the key is really collective action. And it, you know, in this way, food is not any different from income inequality, social justice, racism, any of the other big issues that face us. We can't fix them as individuals. We have to fix them as a society. We have to act collectively to do that. And let me read a few more comments coming in from listeners. Michael writes, uh, people did not used to consume junk food in the quantities they do now. When my mother met her high school friends for a Coke after school, it was only six ounces. And Eric says, with all the E. coli and salmonella outbreaks, it seems we should create lots of good paying jobs for food inspection and investigation to improve our food safety. Here's a curious question from Joe Mark. He says, if I was to take a garden fork and go out into one of the big fields of corn or wheat or soybeans and turn the soil, would I find any worms? Uh, no, you absolutely would not find any worms. I've done it. It's a terrific question. Um, and I've done it in Iowa with uh, with a guy named Matt Liebman who, who who's um, figured out ways for farmers to convert portions of their land back into prairie without losing yield, without reducing yield or losing money. And, and not to go too deeply into that, but if you go to one of Matt's prairie strips and you turn over the soil, it's alive. It's filled with bugs and worms and, and different kinds of microbes and so on. And then if you go to a standard cornfield and turn over the soil, it, it's, it's dead. It, it looks like dirt. It doesn't look like soil. You lament in the book, uh, as you have, I think, uh, in much of your work, uh, the loss of the small family farm, uh, the diminution, that is, of the numbers of small farmers uh, in this country. It's uh, disproportionate uh, to what it was in the past in terms of the receding numbers. Um, what can be done? What do you suggest? What do you recommend? 
Uh, well, you know, it used to be a dirty word or a dirty phrase, but what we need is we need land reform. We need to get land into the hands of people, uh, A, who've been shut out and B, who want to do good farming. And, and um, we really need to look government. Our government is the entity that gave all of this land away. And it did so in an in an unfair and, and I could say racist manner, um, it needs to reconsider, we need to reconsider what's done with our land. We need to restore dignity to farming and we need to put land into the hands of people um, who will treat it right. Again, this is not happening this year or next, although there's an interesting Senate bill sponsored by Booker, Gillibrand and Warren that, that starts us down that path. But but if you want to talk about solutions, this is a this is a long term, a long term solution. Well, we only have seconds left, but Alyssa says, "What does Mr. Bittman think about regenerative farming, like uh, that feature in the movie Biggest Little Farm? Is that the future, and can it be sustainable on a level that can feed us all?" I mean, I I call regenerative farming agroecology, the, the combination of agriculture and ecology, and that is the direction we want to go. Listen, Michael, if we only have seconds left, I want to thank you because every time I've been on the show, I've really enjoyed myself, including this one. So, you know, I wish you the best of luck. And same to you. It's been a pleasure to have you on and good luck with this book and good luck with your future. The book again is called Animal Vegetable Junk. When we return, we'll talk with author, novelist, memoirist, Isabella Allende. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Krasny. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.